acquisitions are part of the technology industry. A successful corporation will often have an exit, either going public or becoming acquired. And with each corporation, there is a set of stories that narrate the company from beginning to end. Acquired is a podcast that tells these stories of companies such as YouTube, Instagram, and PayPal. During each episode, the life of a company is explored from its beginning until the end. Media companies, chip companies, and software companies all take the center stage on various episodes of Acquired. David Rosenthal and Ben Gilbert are the hosts of Acquired, and they join today's show to talk about the podcast that they started, a few business stories, and the podcast industry itself. It was a great episode, and I enjoyed talking to the guys. David and Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We all know about how YouTube and Instagram and PayPal have been acquired by companies and have become pivotal business lines in their acquirers, but there are also acquisitions that are more subtle, acquisitions that are more synergistic, smaller acquisitions. If we're thinking about acquisitions, what role do these more subtle acquisitions play in developing a successful company? Wow, diving right in. I love it. Well, David, do you think talking about our acquisition categories is probably the right way to... Yeah. Well, the first disclaimer we should say is the show actually started focused solely on acquisitions. That was our original theme. Uh, We now do much more. We describe acquired as we tell the stories behind great... Tell the stories of great technology companies. And that can be acquisitions, that can be companies that have gone public, that can be we've even done still private companies. So um, we're much more... Partially because we ran out of really good acquisitions (laughs) and didn't want to just browbeat the bad ones. Exactly. We did AOL Time Warner and then we were like, "Um, (laughs) we should broaden. But yeah, no, to answer your question, there are a bunch of great examples like this. Like I'm... Ben, I don't know if you're thinking about all the Apple acquisitions, yep. but I'm thinking about Sound SoundJam, which became iTunes. I'm thinking about PA Semi, which became Apple Silicon. I mean, that's huge. Like the impact of that. That was what, like a 200 some odd million dollar acquisition, I think, right, Ben? Yeah, it was either in the, I, I the number 50 million stuck in my head, but that may have been Authentech, which was the, I think that was the, yeah. uh, basically the Touch ID company. But yeah, these sort of like low hundred million or even just in the sort of dozens of millions of dollar acquisitions. And I think Apple's line is that they buy small technology companies from time to time and don't comment on their plans for them. They've been very successful at this type of acquisition that is buying a technology, integrating it, and then creating defensibility around their overall business using that technology that that they purchased. And I think that's sort of the less splashy acquisitions. The ones you mentioned are obviously the the ones that are sort of more in the news. But if you think about how much of Apple's enterprise value is attributable to what we now call Apple Silicon or the um, A-series chips that have been in all the iPhones and have enabled it to really do things that other other phones haven't been able to keep pace with. You know, that's that's like an incredibly high ROI use of a few hundred million dollars a decade ago. Most of your shows center around newer companies. Do you have any stories of old acquisitions? Like what about the the Berkshire Hathaway Hathaway textile mill that was acquired, like old stories like that, where, you know, it became the name, it became part of the name of Berkshire Hathaway, but ironically was one of the money losing enterprises. Terrible acquisition. That- <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny, you're foreshadowing an episode that we really want to do this season, because we have not yet touched uh, Warren and Charlie on the show, except in sort of tangential ones. I think they've they funded Capital Cities before it became sort of Disney, ABC, all that. But one that comes to mind for me historically is we got to sit down with Nolan Bushnell, who is sort of the famous cult of personality that uh, that founded Atari, and a lesser known uh, also founded Chuck E. Cheese, which was fun to get the story of how uh, Chuck E. Cheese actually came out of Atari. And that was actually an acquisition that was for a small amount of money. They sold to, was it Warner Media, David? Is that right? Yeah, it was exactly before the merger with Time. Right. And the interesting thing about that was they had sold before the home console market really blew up. 
And so the company that they built was largely coin-op arcade games. You know, you have to remember this is the this is the 70s and the home console market largely created by sort of Atari and then really successfully uh, sort of grown by Nintendo hadn't really come into being yet. And the, was it the 2600? The That's the sort of famed Atari yeah. system actually came out after the acquisition. And so all the value of uh, that that sort of created in the world ended up accruing not to Atari, the independent company, but to a, a, a very good acquisition by Warner that ultimately, you know, as I mentioned, Nintendo, they sort of botched it over time and they could have become a multi-billion dollar player in the video game industry had they continued to innovate. But they sort of just got the short-term benefit of acquiring Atari and getting all that initial value from the 2600. But that was an example of one where frankly, it was a culture mis- mismatch and they couldn't they couldn't keep the party going and they couldn't keep all the innovators there long enough to keep inventing and, and staying on the cutting edge. Uh, at least that was my sort of takeaway. What did you think, David? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the sections we do on the show is what would have happened otherwise, uh, where we talk about this kind of stuff. But, you know, if Atari hadn't sold, if it had remained independent, you know, would we be playing the Atari Switch today instead of the Nintendo Switch? Or uh, talking about the, you know, Atari Xbox, you know, was it the Series S that's uh, coming out soon, I think, in the PS5? Oh, yeah. But yeah, like... it was because Warner went through its own super complicated, you know, corporate drama around that time and just was impossible that uh, I think Atari was going to flourish within it. On the other flip side of that, a historical small acquisition that most people don't know about at all that went incredibly well for the product and the company is uh, Benny Smile, you thinking about PowerPoint? The funny thing is like what millennials we are to call... Uh PowerPoint in 1991, I think, or 1990, a historical acquisition. But uh, I thought it was 87. I, think. Uh, I could be wrong. Maybe, Maybe the Office Suite came out in 91. Yeah. But yeah, like it's certainly historical compared to all those companies that I listed off earlier, you know, the Uber, SpaceX, Slack, those episodes we've done. Yeah, PowerPoint, I think the reason I, Dave and I are both smiling is Microsoft's first acquisition. Most people don't know it was an acquisition. You sort of assume, much like Word and Excel, that it was sort of grown internally at Microsoft. And the other crazy thing about it is people before PowerPoint, business presentations weren't done with like a slide deck. Like this this was like kind of breakthrough. It's a breakthrough idea that you could have sort of a dynamic set of slides that you use to convey a message. And the best part about the whole thing was when Microsoft bought it, it was actually software that was used to print overhead projector transparencies. It was not the PowerPoint that we know today. And so you'd sort of finalize your deck, you'd send it off to the printer, and then you'd use your transparencies. And I just, I can't believe that the Microsoft thought that that was valuable enough to purchase and later, you know, go on to be a major leg of the stool of the office suite. The other cool little trivia about you can tell we're total history buffs about this. <laughs> uh, the other super cool bit of trivia about PowerPoint is when it was the company was called Forethought, I think, and the product was was PowerPoint. It was based in Silicon Valley. It was not in Seattle. It was not in not in Redmond. And when Microsoft acquired it. The campus and the office space uh, down in in Menlo Park, where where Forethought was, and that became Microsoft Silicon Valley Campus. It was on Sand Hill Road in the Quadris office complex on Sand Hill Road, which would go on to become like the epicenter of the venture capital industry. August Capital moved in there. August Capital had had invested in Microsoft. Uh, Benchmark ended up moving in there. And it was all because it was the Microsoft South, you know, satellite. And that's why the, the VC industry grew up on Sand Hill Road. Wow. Yeah, very fortuitous. And I think what's interesting about some of these acquisitions is how after the acquisition happens, the brand gets glossed over. Some, you know, like the, you know, you mentioned the Microsoft PowerPoint, the same thing happened with the brand that became Google Docs. And then in other cases, you have the brand thriving as an entity under the acquirer, like an Instagram acquisition. So it does seem like brand gets used differently depending on the acquisition. And so these the M&A strategies that you see in acquirers, they sometimes center around different entities having synergies with each other and sharing the data or the business, uh, having this thing basically be ingested by the larger acquirer. Other times the entities remain completely distinct. Like you, you could th- think of all the private equity companies that have acquired 
some of these newer SaaS companies and just kept them totally distinct. So there's these two different strategies where you have strong overlap between the acquisition targets and then the other strategy where you have these highly distinct acquisition targets. Could you describe these two different strategies and what are the situations where acquisitions become distinct versus merged? Yeah, totally. It's funny, you know, when you're talking about you know, private equity and the standalone, it made me think of sort of company that Ben and I both admire is uh, Constellation Software, which is a uh, software holding company. You brought up Berkshire earlier. People call them the Berkshire Hathaway of software. They're literally a company that all they do is acquire other software companies. They're a publicly traded company, not a fund, but they just leave the companies alone. They, they, they don't integrate them. There's no synergies. There's no, it's just, they keep operating just like Berkshire. So I think... I think for, as you know, having done shoot over a hundred episodes now, I think where each of these, so companies and acquirers do things based on often what the politics are within the company. And so they get this wrong a lot. So I don't think you can necessarily predict uh, how to do this, but I think the right way to do this, that's going to be the biggest odds for success is if the company that's being acquired is more of more of a technology platform you know like like PSMI obviously Apple is not going to keep the PSMI brand for Apple Silicon then that's that's obvious or or even you know sometimes with products like with PowerPoint made more sense for that to become part of the office suite than to be a fully standalone offering within Microsoft or Siri um, Siri was actually the name of the company that they acquired that did the voice tech and then they were like you know what we like this enough that the feature name is going to stay Siri when we launch it and I think that's like a that's a little bit of a rare case but that was one where I would definitely not there was no reason for them to keep the name Siri but they decided to roll with it anyway yeah you know one of the categories that we have on the show is called business line and I think when when there's an opportunity for an acquired company to become a true independent business line. And what we mean by that is like, is like Instagram is like YouTube, you know, owned by Facebook, owned by Google, but those businesses have the potential to become of the same order of magnitude scale as the parent company, or even the best example of this ever is booking.com uh, was acquired by Priceline. Remember William Shatner, the price line negotiator? ended up becoming much, much, much bigger than the parent company, than, than Priceline in the fullness of time. You know, in those cases, the best thing to do, you know, Facebook was really the first people to systematically figure this out is just leave them alone, you know, <laughs> let them sit there, truly be an independent company, you know, oftentimes not even on the campus, because anything you're going to do as a parent company is just going to mess with the magic. Yeah, I would say that the way I sort of look at this is like, it depends whether you are basically making an investment, which a private equity firm would do or a Constellation software would do or a Berkshire would do and say, it's a good idea for us to own this and let it run. Um, and hopefully it grows dramatically in value while we own it. The most successful ones that we've covered on Acquired, and we did this top 10 episode to try and pick apart and do some analytical uh, um, slicing on what are the top 10 best acquisitions of all time. The ones that we sort of came away with are the ones where there are synergies and the synergies are on the revenue producing side of the house rather than the cost cutting side of the house. So it's one thing for Zillow and Trulia to merge and say, great, now we can have less, you know, finance and operations people so that we get to sla slash that. And also we get to cut our marketing spend in half because now we don't have to bid on the same keywords. So lots of cost savings there, but doesn't make the top 10 ever. It's a logical acquisition to do, but it doesn't create tons of value. The ones that create tons of value are where you look at something like Instagram, where they have unbelievable path to audience, but they themselves have no infrastructure to, to reach advertisers or have an advertising platform. Meanwhile, B Facebook has the best one in the world. And so by combining Instagram's reach and frankly, the trajectory they were on, because they just didn't have that many users when they got bought, um, but everyone could sort of see where it was going and couple that with Facebook's ability to plug it into all the existing assets of the business, that makes for a just tremendously valuable acquisition. It's kind of the classic Microsoft playbook too, where they have one of the best sales channels in the world with their massive sales force and by buying a great technology that they can then push out through their existing sales distribution customer acquisition that whole machine the go-to-market machine those are pretty valuable as well yeah, and so i cisco I, that, and oracle same story 
yeah, that that's sort of my framework of thinking about it is, okay, is it a Berkshire type, buy it and leave it alone thing? No. Okay, well, are they buying it for uh, cost cutting or are they buying it for potential new revenue creation? And that potential new revenue creation is, is where all the, the best ones live. Moving on from the topic of just acquisitions, as you said, your, your show has gone on to become something more like a variety of company stories, as well as things that are more timely. And that's your series on adaptations. These are adaptations that companies are making to this unprecedented, weird social distancing COVID-19 world we're living in. Give an overview of what you're trying to tell with these adaptations. The notion behind adapting, and we did three episodes before we realized you know, we're going to be in this COVID thing for a while, and uh, we don't just want to tell adapting stories. So we're sort of back to back to our normal uh, telling. We adapted back. <laughs> yeah, telling <laughs> stories of epic companies, whether they're adapting or not. Um, and and by, by, by the way, that is the, the whole thing where we were all like, okay, we're just going to be in this like quarantine for a while. And then it's like everybody sort of simultaneously has realized, uh-oh, this is never ending. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. Totally. And I also felt like... Well, how, like, how is it that nobody recognized that early on, that this was just going to become the new norm? Well, I mean, not to get political, but I think we observed what some of the countries who handled this, and I'm speaking as a U.S. citizen here, the countries who handled this the best did. And like, if you truly isolated everyone before it got too spread around, then you could actually run a test trace isolate strategy and, and get down to, you know, a manageable number. We just didn't do that. And so, you know, now it's just spread around everywhere and we got to, I guess, wait for a vaccine. I think there's also a, definitely a human nature element to this too of like, it's just, you know, you so don't, I at least so didn't want to believe that this was going to be the next like year yeah. to two years of my life you know <laughs> but uh yeah it's crazy yeah maybe it's more of that i don't i don't need to make this a it's it's also unlike anything else we've ever experienced before so like the natural human thing is to pattern match off of what has ever happened to you so far and things like bad things don't last that long like bad things happen and then you recover from them and then you move on and this is like no matter how much we want to be like, woo, okay, that wave is over. Like it, it's still out there. But yeah, what we were trying to do with adapting, and I guess what we did with adapting was it felt so wrong to release anything in like mid-March through the end of April. Like David and I were just, we were talking about like, should we just stop doing acquired? Like, does the world really need glory stories of what brilliant business strategists pulled off the best, most value capturing acquisitions of all time. And like, it just felt like so off the mark and, you know, local businesses were shutting down, tech startups were laying off half the company and lots of our employees were, or lots of our listeners were getting laid off. And we were like, it's just, there's gotta be a way that we can use sort of our platform and our understanding of how to analyze these companies to tell stories right now that are like useful or more interesting to to listen to, especially if you're one of those people that were affected. And so adapting, we covered three companies that went through, that adapted to the change, that basically saw the writing on the wall, acted with leadership, acted decisively, and changed their strategy. And we we covered uh, Canlis, which was one of the first restaurants. It's, it's a fine dining restaurant here in Seattle, probably the nicest restaurant in the city, and internationally renowned for just the unbelievable experience and food that they provide. And we covered them deciding to do what seemed like a crazy thing is shut down the dining room and switch to a delivery business, uh, a morning uh, drive through bagel shop and a CSA, which is like a they leveraged all their relationships with their suppliers to just sell their. And this looks crazy when they did this. I mean, every other restaurant in the city was open. There was no, right. you know, there were no mandates about this. Yeah, like, I think yeah. this was like March 15th or so they did this and i know now it seems like duh but i think they were really a leader in sort of pioneering okay what does a restaurant even one at this tier do amidst all this and so we also covered uh, we had um Roloff botha on from sequoia who who talked about their black swan memo which again was early i mean the the memo heard around the world this this was something where they were writing about you know and they sent to their portfolio ceos frankly, two weeks before everyone else had sort of said, uh-oh, like, 
every business needs to change dramatically. Now, throw out your plans, write new plans. And, you know, they changed the strategy a little bit at Sequoia, not to spoil the episode too much. So we thought it was very interesting to have him on. And then we told a historical story from a different crisis where, uh, little known fact, Intel, for its first 15, 20 years as a business, didn't make CPUs. They made memory chips. And overnight, well, overnight, over a five-year period, that basically became a pure commodity. And there were these Japanese companies that were far superior in quality and far cheaper on price. And they were they were coming into the market. They had tons of volume. And Intel had this moment of crisis where they bet big on what was to become a 25-year differentiated path of being a, you know, the best CPU company. And you know, that was very, it was a huge bet for them as a company and a, kind of an amazing story of, of leadership to adapt to the times. And once we got through telling those three, we basically had settled into this new normal and we were looking yeah. at each other like, <laughs> God, I miss doing the regular show. Like I, I don't, I don't want to just keep saying, woe is me. And what lessons can we learn? I think people are looking for a little bit more escapism. Indeed. I want to escape to the past or escape to the future somehow. <laughs> I would love to do that. Coming back to your segmentation of different types of acquisitions, there's different types of companies, and, and this is revisiting the the acquisition story. How do the mechanics of an acquisition change depending on what kind of company we're talking about? So let's say you know media companies versus chip companies versus software companies. How does the different categories of an acquisition affect how the mechanics of that acquisition take place? Yeah, well, the first thing I'll say, uh, and I'll give David some time to think on how that category actually affects mechanics. The number one thing that affects mechanics is deal heat. And I always wanted it to be the type of acquisition because then we could do a more academic look at exactly the question you're asking. But the Instagram got d- deal got done over the weekend without the M&A team involved, and they were notified on Sunday night that they were going to be announcing the deal on Monday morning, and it was just done by Mark Zuckerberg and Kevin Sinstrom and, and Mikey. And that was crazy. Like the, It was just something that the founders wanted to do. Mark knew that now was the time. There was and sort Twitter of competitive pressure to do it. Yeah. Uh, WhatsApp, pretty similar situation. Deal heat sort of forced a commitment. You look at another one, uh, I'm thinking of Disney and Pixar. Bob Iger came in to become CEO of, uh, of Disney and wanted to pull off this crazy thing of buying Pixar. And he thought, this is going to be the first thing I want to do at the helm of this company is go and mend the relationship that we've broken with with Pixar and with Steve Jobs. And I'm going to extend the olive branch. Steve Jobs basically said, look, like... Disney sucks at doing deals. You guys take forever. You bring in all the lawyers. I don't trust you. I didn't trust your predecessor. We're out. And Bob, to prove a point and say, you know, we're different, got a deal done in 10 days. And so it's, uh, interestingly enough, I think it's other motivating factors around how motivated someone is to get a deal done and how senior of a, of a sponsor it is on the deal, if it's the CEO or not, that really affects how much red tape and process there is around, uh, around pulling the acquisition off. Go ahead, David. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, on, you know, to your question of what type of acquisition and how that impacts the process... I don't know that the type of acquisition impacts the process as directly kind of, you know, what Ben said, deal heat is the most important. But one thing we started doing recently, we had um, on our second show on Acquired, on our LP show, uh, we had the author Hamilton Helmer on, when was that? Was it in February, I think, Ben? Yeah, in February. It was right before COVID hit. That's right. And we've gotten to know him a little bit. We're actually, we launched a book club on as part of the LP program and Seven Powers. His book is is the first book in the book club. But he his book, Seven Powers, he talks about there are seven, he's identified seven quote unquote powers in business. And these powers are what makes a business defensible. Uh, you could think of it, you know, in the Berkshire Hathaway parlance as, you know, what what is the nature of the moat around the business? And I think one thing we've seen, so we started uh, sometimes categorizing companies and acquisitions according to which power they have. And, and, and so I think what's super important in the process of an acquisition is like, 
making sure you don't mess with the power, you know? And the powers range from network effects is is an obvious one that, you know, most people know. Switching costs is a different one that a lot of uh, SaaS companies, you know, are, are built around these days. Could be a very powerful brand like a Tiffany's. But an in- a really interesting one in terms of acquisitions is a cornered resource. And a cornered resource could be a patent, like this happens in biotech and pharma a lot. But the Pixar, the Pixar deal is really interesting. The cornered resource, Hamilton kind of defines it as like, what is something, it's not just one person, but what's, what is some resource that this corporation has access to uniquely that nobody else could competitively come arbitrage and hire away in the case of a person? And for Pixar, it was the brain trust, right? And uh, it wasn't just Ed and John, it was the two of them and the collective culture around all of the directors at Pixar and what they were able to accomplish in the creative process. And so I think Disney masterfully handled this where they, in terms of, you know, Bob Iger getting the acquisition done, a big reason it happened was he said to, to Ed and John and, and Steve Jobs too, you know, we want you to come take over Disney animation in addition to Pixar that we realize the brain trust is what is, magical what is the power here and so not only are you going to keep it we're going to expand you know bob used the uh, analogy of the canvas that you get to paint on which is perfect for that for that deal yeah last like <laughs> this is so funny the other big thing that dictates this is leverage so i think most of the folks listening to your show jeff is like Many of them are entrepreneurial software engineers. They may have sold um, a company at some point. And us saying things like it took 10 days for Disney to get a deal done with Pixar or it took the weekend to buy Instagram. If they've ever sold their company, they're like, "What? Do you, that was a six month awful, awful process. And like that is largely the case when the big companies got nothing but time on their side. The startup usually is either running out of money or has to make a call at some point soon. Do we need to fundraise versus sell? It's hard to get multiple bidders looking at you. And so it's this really rare scenario where a company actually has enough, the the acquiree actually has enough leverage to force a deal to get done and to force a bidding war. And I think most of the time, what it looks like is, you know, your sponsor needs to, uh, the deal sponsor on the acquiring side needs to carefully use their political capital and build decks and build models and make pitches internally and stake their career on getting it done. And that just is a many month process it gets expensive, it has lawyers. And so that to me is also a big factor in sort of mechanically how, how the acquisition happens. Have you guys seen any impact of COVID on acquisitions, whether it changes acquisition prices or changes acquisition mechanics? Interesting question. In some ways, it's too soon to tell. Uh, I know of a mid-stage startup that just bought a, uh, not a tech-based competitor, but a a sort of older world competitor for much cheaper than they otherwise would have because that that company basically looked around at their options right now, revenues down, you know, they had to do some layoffs. Their opportunity for future capital is, you know, much more diminished than it otherwise would be. And so they sold to this mid-stage startup that I know of for a, a very attractive price to the the buyer. And so I, I just have that, that one example that's top of mind that I know of from this week, but I have to assume that sort of consolidation is going on in a lot of places. And I guess the, the way to buck, create that bucket is there's a lot of companies that are uh, on sale right now that otherwise would be more expensive. Although some companies are uh, <laughs> higher priced than they were before. You know, I think that I agree. I don't think, I don't know that we're close enough to current processes to say, but um one area we are both close to is is the venture financing landscape, um, you know, as, as investors ourselves. And that's interesting. You know, a lot of investment rounds are still getting done, you know, capital still being deployed just as strongly and just as rapidly. But it seems, I don't know about you, Ben, but every VC I talk to, every conversation, people say, you know, new stuff and what's getting done is stuff that I already had a relationship. It was moving along. I was tracking this company, you know, since their last round. But new companies, you know, people say like, I don't know. I think it'd be really hard to build a relationship with a founder just over Zoom. So I do wonder if 
it's hitting the early stage and making that harder for companies to fundraise disproportionately. Yeah, I, d- I do think that that is true. And that translates to the M&A market as well, where unless the startup has been building a relationship with the potential acquirer through potentially being a partner or a distribution deal or something through previous years, you know, forming relationships net new right now are just hard. And so it's like, in in any deal, be it a funding or an acquisition, there's a let's see what's the right physics analogy here. The kinetic the coefficient for uh, static friction is higher than the coefficient for kinetic friction, and so it's much higher to like generate the activation energy to start that relationship on a good enough foot where you're going to have enough momentum to carry you through to actually getting the deal done. And that's definitely happening. I saw some great data published this week from Redpoint, which basically said, at least in the funding markets, lots of capital still being deployed, but it's happening into fewer companies at higher valuations. And the way to translate that, if you're thinking about why is that happening, the investors are basically willing to pay up, you know, more expensive prices for more safe bets. Hey, we already know this company's doing well. So everybody's chasing those few companies that are doing well. And all the companies that are like not doing well or doing fine are getting ignored. And, and people are willing to just deploy more capital at higher prices into those sort of few proven companies. I think the exact same thing's going to play out in M&A, but those things sort of take a while to surface. My favorite episode that you guys have done is not about acquired. It's not about an acquisition. It's not really about company. It's about Sequoia Capital. Uh, I mean, Sequoia is a company, but it's an investment firm. You did this epic two-part story of Sequoia. What did you learn from studying Sequoia? Oh my gosh, so much. I mean, they're they're the OGs. Like Don Valentine, the founder of Sequoia, he really, he almost single-handedly invented modern venture capital. There were others that, you know, Klein and Perkins was started right around the same time and, and you know, Draper and, and all of his crew were, were operating too. So it wasn't completely, but just so much the way he and Sequoia operated from the beginning, he was the only person that was from the technology industry. You know, he was the head of sales at, at Fairchild uh, and um, head of sales and marketing, which Marketing <laughs> meant something very different back in those days, and uh, um, you know, it was, certainly didn't uh, mean growth hacking. No, something much more akin to strategy. And the way that he and and I think you can so everything Sequoia has done over the past forty years since came came out of this, and, and so much of the rest of the venture industry evolved from just a financial way of thinking about things. I mean, like shoot, you know, Fairchild was financed as to, as not as an independent company, but as the division of a camera company based in Long Island, New York. Everybody else who was coming at this new industry from a finance perspective wouldn't have seen that what mattered was the market potential for products and technologies. And so that was everything that Don, because first it was just Don in the beginning, focused on. And then Sequoia ever since, you know, Don says famously like, uh, you know, there's a quote, um, I think it's something like, uh, you know, we, he's, he's giving a talk at Stanford he says, you know, if you if you were interviewing at venture capital firms, you know, and and they ask you, you know, we ask the candidates at Sequoia, why do you think we're successful? If we're successful, most people say, oh, you finance the best and brightest, and you people from Stanford and people, you know, blah blah blah. And Dad says, that's not it at all. We focus on the market. We only care about the market potential, the future market potential of this technology or product, and who the people are who are who are building it you know is of course important but in many ways it's it's secondary you know the the financials of the deal at the time who the people are their histories their background is secondary to is there going to be a market for this thing yeah which is very contrarian to what you hear from most early stage investors today who say it's all about the people sequoia at least in that era was like look if we need to change the people we'll change the people but we need to like what they're going after and and, you know I, i think uh uh Sequoia is a great picture of clear thinking. And I just pulled up my notes from the episode when you asked the question to reflect back on what what did we learn. And one of my favorite things were Don Valentine's ground rules, where he basically said there's these six things. One is must be a very big market. Two, must be in Northern California. Must be an advanced technology. Must have high gross margin ability. 
must have the potential for Sequoia to make $100 million and must be positively responsive to our active participation. And by laying out those like, ver- that, that was sort of the earliest investment criteria in the venture industry, where by having that clarity of thought and saying, look, we're only going to do deals that look like this, it really, it not only saves you a lot of time, but it clarifies what your job is and what Sequoia's job was in the ecosystem. And that dovetails well with my other big takeaway, which was Sequoia was started at this moment in time where it was one of the very first technology waves with semiconductors. And, you know, we talk a lot about waves on Acquire, and I'm sure uh, everybody has sort of talked about this zeitgeist of you had the wave of PCs, and then you had the wave of the internet, and you have the wave of mobile. And that enables a five to 10 year span of new innovation that's available on top of that brand new platform before it sort of reaches the top of the S-curve. And you have sort of... um decelerating innovation in that area. Well, Don had come out of being, you know, was it head of sales for Fairchild. And so he knew what all the customers were looking for out of Fairchild to do with the semiconductors, and they just couldn't fulfill demand. So when he started Sequoia, he knew like, okay, semiconductors are going to be used in everything. There's going to be this explosive growth. And it's up to me to basically just finance the best sort of uses of semiconductors that I think are the most interesting businesses. And he executed what they called the aircraft carrier strategy of just funding the companies around a wave. He later did this with with Apple Computer because they, Sequoia was one of the earliest investors there and, and funded a lot of companies that sort of sat around the original Apple machine. Disk drives, printers, yep. et cetera. Yep. But I just thought it was so not everyone can pull that off, or I should say it takes, there's a very few set of people who could pull that off. And there's a very specific set of times ever that that can be pulled off. And it has to be right in that first year or so of a wave. And from a person who has the experience to basically see the future of that wave and be able to bet with the clarity of thought that that Don was betting to create so many of those successful early companies. Yeah, it's funny. Ben mentions Apple and Sequoia's history there. You know, that's the, the other big lesson that I think I've really taken from studying Sequoia that's changed my thinking and behavior hugely is the lesson they learned from what happened with Apple. They sold their stake in Apple. They were one of the main first financiers of the company. They sold their stake, I think it was right before the IPO, and they returned, quote unquote, returned the fund that Apple was in, but they net made, what was it, $6 million on Apple, something like that then? Yeah. And, uh, you know, if they'd held on to that, it would be worth like two, three hundred billion dollars today. And that was such an important lesson for them as a firm, which was that when things are going well, when there's a bright future ahead, you know, whatever, there's always all sorts of noise and external circumstances. And it'd be nice to get liquidity and blah, blah, blah. But if you think there's a real big chance ahead for a company, that's just noise. You need to hold as long as possible. And so you see, you know, a perfect example, this is Square, right? Like, you know, Square went public in, what was that, 2016, I think, right, Ben? And Sequoia was the first, I believe, first investor. The IPO went terribly, (laughs) but Sequoia held on to their shares. They still hold on to their shares. They're still on the board. It's been public for four plus years. And the company has uh, 12X, I think, in the public markets. And I don't think they have any intention of selling their shares. Yeah, I have been shook. One lesson from Acquired is for the best companies, it is staggering how much of their growth happens after the IPO. Because the canonical wisdom in our industry, especially in startups, is about getting in on the ground floor. Because gosh, if you can be a part of a company when it's worth $10 million, by the time it IPOs, you never need to work again. And of course, that's not true for lots of reasons, including you know getting in at Series B or C valuations or stock option tax crap. But the sort of best companies are able to see those 10, 50, 100x increases in valuation after they go public. And so, you know, the, the, I think, David, it's exactly what you were alluding to with Square. Obviously, we've seen it with Zoom recently. We saw it tons and tons and tons of times with all those companies in the 80s, think Microsoft, Apple, like there, there's, you know, a lot of the highest market cap tech companies in the world were started before 2005. So in the last 15 years, we haven't really had anybody come in to replace the FANG or I don't know, however you want to describe the, the sort of tech stocks right now. But it definitely 
is counter to the trend that we sort of all buy into of get in early because that's when the multiples happen. Well, it's get in early, but if the future is bright, don't exit. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. As people can tell, you guys have a great rapport and I, I love your podcast. So it would be remiss not to talk about podcasting a little bit. Podcasting in 2020, strange times. How have things changed since the earliest days when you started podcasting? It feels so long ago. Yeah, and I thought we were getting into podcasting late. I remember, I think, David, we originally started talking about doing a show in February of 2015 and finally actually released our first episode in October 2015. And I I remember thinking, podcasting is a decade old. Like, I wish I had done this so much earlier. (laughs) It's like uh, the quote about uh, Mark Andreessen showed up in Silicon Valley in, what was it, 95 or something and felt like he'd missed it. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely shown that he hasn't. But yeah, I, th- I want to say there was something like, I would guess on the order of 50 to 100,000 podcasts in 2015. And, you know, we just passed, I think we're plateauing, but we just passed 1.3 million in the iTunes directory. And I, I think the question is, who in the millennial generation doesn't have a podcast is probably the most interesting question to ask at any given party. And so uh, for us, I think there's a certain element of luck of feeling like uh, we got to ride a bit of a wave here. But as you said, the market dynamics are changing dramatically. The biggest driver of which is uh, Spotify. They've basically decided, hey, Apple screwed up by not capitalizing on the market position that they had with a player that had 75 plus percent of the share of year of people who listen to podcasts. And various people had made a run at sort of turning, you know, aggregating all those listeners and creating private content over the years. But you know, the first real competitor now is Spotify leveraging the fact that, what is it, 80 some million people, is it 80 million paid? I can't remember exactly what my numbers are, but lots of people use Spotify. 200 million plus total. Yeah. To listen to music. And so the other job to be done by your ears is listening to spoken audio. And so they thought we can serve that need too. And by initially running the playbook that everyone else ran of, hey, we're just going to put all the shows in here, just like Overcast does, just like Apple Podcast does, but then slowly figuring out, you know, not all at once one way to create private content, but by slowly introducing, you know, hey, this is windowed content or, hey, this show uh, is going to be better on Spotify, but available everywhere. And now they're having, they're really doing more exclusive content they're both capturing share of ear because they were right that they could effectively turn their music listeners into podcast listeners. But they're also doing a good job val- uh, doing value capture there because to the extent where they they can use private podcasts to bring new people into being paid Spotify members. And you look at things like the new shows that Gimlet is producing or what will happen with Joe Rogan later this fall or winter you know, that their their cost structure for podcasting is so much better than their cost structure for music. Because with music, they have no upside of scale. For every stream, they got to pay it out to a, a record label, no yeah, matter how I many streams happen. Scab, yeah. But with podcasting, they can pay up front and then all the upside gravy is theirs. And so they've just been... I mean, it is one of, there's going to be amazing business strategy case studies on this of masterfully being both right and then able to capture value from it. And I think that is the main driver of what you're seeing in all these other changes by all these other companies who are trying to, you know, fortify their defenses against Spotify becoming the dominant way to listen to podcasts. Yeah. How are you finding things? The thing that I actually struggling with the most existentially right now is like, do we actually learn from podcasts? Is podcasts like, are, are these actually the useful? Like, what are we actually doing listening <laughs> to this stuff? Like, I listen to it, I'm like, am I retaining this? Is this like sort of massaging my ears and just, or, or like, you know, it kind of reminds me of, this is a really self-deprecating way of putting it, but you know those infomercials with the with the electrodes that you put across your stomach and you like, yes. the electrodes <laughs> just kind of like, do you, do you, do Yeah, that's how like, I stay in yeah. shape. Right, exactly. That's how you get a six pack. <laughs> Somebody should restart marketing that in time of coronavirus. In, in D2C as like a beautifully branded like uh, pink and green site. Well, exactly. So, but the, here's the thing is like, are we just sitting here with the electrodes attached to our abs and like trying to get a six pack by listening to software engineering content or business content? That's what concerns me the most. I mean, people are still listening. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still, 
enjoying it. I enjoy the interviews, but uh, it is kind of an existential question for me. How educational is this stuff? Yeah, I mean, for me, there's two jobs to be done by spoken audio. One is entertainment and one is education. And if it's entertainment, great. Like, there's lots of entertainment is a very valid way to spend your time. It's probably too hedonic to spend all your time doing that. But, you know, we pay to go to the movies. We play Fortnite. There's if podcasts are entertaining, then awesome. If it's education, then the question is like, do we make use of that education? Certain, and is it really education if you're not making use of it? Like, otherwise, is it just sort of uh, indulgent entertainment and a curiosity where you're never going to apply that knowledge in any way, shape, or form? And I'll say, like, as a business tech podcaster who didn't go to business school and do not have a formal business education, I did computer science undergrad and was sort of a indie iOS developer for a long time. And now more of what I do is on the business side of things, both starting and investing in companies. I think podcasts were transformative to me in in my sort of understanding of uh, key business concepts. And you know, I often find them to be like a top of funnel into something deeper. So I'll hear Bill Gurley talk on a podcast and and bring up some concepts that are alluding to the Michael Porter HBS uh, article on competitive strategy. And then I go read that. and I'm like, whoa, I so fundamentally understand business strategy more now because the podcast taught it to me at a high level in an approachable way. And then I went and ate my vegetables. And now I really understand that thing. And I think like, to me, that's been the most useful use of podcasts in my life. Yeah. Indeed. How, do, how do you feel about it with engineering topics? Like, is oh, it? Oh, yeah. Same thing. I think it's communicating. Top, the, the top of funnel is the way to think about it. You know, it, you, you, you hear a little bit about some tech technology thing and then you go try it out and see if it solves your problem. Yeah. I guess it'd be like a taking a CS course in college. Like you go to the lectures, right? And like get exposed to some, but like then you do the, you know, the programming exercises and you build, you build, you know, things. And then that's how you internalize it. Indeed. Yeah, Jeff, I'm actually curious. So Dave and I have learned the hard way over the years that even though in our notes, we have lots and lots of tabular information, it, it doesn't translate well at all in audio. Like we have to cut off all decimal places. We try not to use too many numbers because it just gets confusing. And I find that like the more, obviously a show about engineering is not just reading numbers, but like the more technical a topic, the more it drifts toward being tabular in nature. And do you ever struggle with, I'm trying to under, I'm trying to explain something technical here, but it doesn't translate as well to audio as it would in written content? Well, I think every piece of technology has a set of organizational or human level problems that come with it. And so you can often touch a little bit on the technical side of things, and then you can touch on the human level or the organizational side of things, which are, which is easier to, di- to digest. Hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You don't, you don't have to sense. get into the like, you know, hey, all right, tell me the, you know, the method name for this <laughs> piece of functionality. Right. Right. Yeah. You have the philosophical conversation on the podcast and then people can go read the documentation on their own time. Yeah, exactly. Well, final question. What's the differentiator for people who are who are still listening and they haven't checked out Acquired? There are many, many business podcasts these days. How do you differentiate? Ooh, we talk about this all the time. Yeah, it's like you're in uh, you're in our iMessage here. So I will be the first to say, and this has always been my approach sort of in life. And David, you can give your more well thought through answer in a a second. But like, (laughs) so I went to Ohio State. My approach is let Ben answer first. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, studied computer science there. I was by no means the smartest person in my computer science class. And so like, I just figured if I wanted to get good grades, then I just had to work harder than anybody else. And that hard works could sort of like overcome. I'd say I'm like smart, but not genius. And so I think the way that I've approached the show is kind of the same way, which is like, just go deeper, do more work. Like if you're going to have a guest on know everything that they've ever put on the internet. And if you're going to like do a deep dive on a company, do a really effing deep dive on that company. And like, we have David to thank for this mostly because he's, he's so good at the history and facts and does, he leads the kind of uh, historical research part of the show. But like, our SpaceX episode neared three hours. And for me, like that's that sort of like 
depth and our willingness to be just like diving headfirst into an internet rabbit hole of like, what is everything I can possibly learn about this subject is part one of sort of what defines the show. But then it's our our ability to do, what's the phrase? There's the first 90% of the work and then the last 10% is the other 90% or something. But to do the second 90%, (laughs) which is like actually assembling it in a way that is digestible. Once you become expert on a topic to actually then figure out what's the pony in here? Like, what's the story? What should people care about? How do we anchor on it? And, and to me, it's the marriage of the willingness to go deep and then the willingness to do the work to really synthesize it that I think is differentiating. Yeah, which is totally Ben's superpower. <laughs> ben, uh, ben writes all of our, um, we structure our episodes with, uh, you know, the, we, we do like a fun, like kind of joke quote as like a cold opener. And then, uh, and then Ben does a little hook. Uh, and we, st- we started this eh, year two, two years ago, maybe of like, okay, what's the 90, you know, 60 to 90 seconds. That's going to be like, why should you listen to this? And, uh, Ben just does a masterful job with it. All this reminds me, Ben, what you're saying, I totally agree of the Warren Buffett quote since we've just been all about Warren and Charlie on this episode of, you know, what mattered, what's going to get you farthest in life is not the power, the horsepower in your engine, but the quality of your drivetrain. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that, yeah, totally that defines acquired, I think. Yeah. The other thing I think that, that since many listeners of this show may have never listened to acquired, it's probably David in my background, the fact that we're not journalists. So there's a whole set of shows, including things like how I built this, that like, we're going to have a different approach because we're industry practitioners, myself being a dev gone PM gone startup studio gone VC and David coming from the much more financial side, but both of us being nerds at heart where like there's a practitioner's approach to it that I think is different than a, the journalist approach, but there's a willingness to try and do the work to build the story that makes it not just a pile of facts. Cool guys. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show and thanks for creating a podcast that I've gotten a lot of value from. Hey. Likewise. (laughs) Thanks for listening to uh, what started as David and I trying to find a reason for us to hang out more. And thanks for having us on the show. I think uh, this has been fun. 